Thank you, Tony. I love that you prayed for chocolate and ice cream. If you knew Tony, that may not have been a prayer of thanksgiving for you, but for him it was sincere and heartfelt, and I've been with him when he eats those things and he worships God as he does. (laughs) So that's neat. Uh, That's just a childlike prayer. I love it. So thanks for doing that. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here, Church of the Redeemer. It's so good to see uh, so many of you uh, this morning. We are in the middle of a series working through the books of First and Second Samuel very quickly, looking at the life of King David, who is one of the more prominent figures in the Old Testament. So if you have uh, a Bible and you'd like to read with us, we're gonna, it's going to be hard for you to follow along, but we're going to be in first, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter 11 for a few verses, then we're going to skip to chapter 12 for a few verses, and then we're going to skip to Psalm 51, which is one of David's more famous psalms that he penned. Uh, that was in response to uh, the story of his sinning with Bathsheba in uh, first, excuse me, Second Samuel uh, chapter eleven. So we're going to kind of read three pieces to try to piece the story together, so that we can kind of see the whole the whole picture this morning. So if, if you want to follow along, you're welcome to. If you don't, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me as I read, so you can follow along. Okay, let's read together. Beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Very, uh, let me just stop. Very unusual for a woman to be um, described not only by her father's name and also her husband's name. So most people say, uh, and one of the features of the story is David would have known who those men were. They probably were serving in, I mean, Uriah serving in his army. Eliab served with David as well, was one of his advisors. So they, these are people David is intimately involved with. They're friends. Which just makes the story kind of even more surreal. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many, very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now... There came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then it's repeated there. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, 
the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And then listen to David's prayer. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we're going to take a couple of weeks and look at this, this kind of scene from David's life because it's important. And so next week we're just going to take Psalm 51 and, and look at Psalm 51 and kind of go through the whole thing. But this morning we want to kind of look here at the story of David and Bathsheba and then Nathan coming to confront him of his sin. Uh, last week we saw David at his absolute best. And we saw Terry at his absolute best. Right? David... Caring for Mephibosheth, the son of, of Saul, and, and just the love and the, the, to his enemy that David showed to that young man who was crippled, bringing him to eat at his table. And just, you just David and his magnanimity and generosity, and you just look at him and say, man, there is an amazing man of God. But this week, in just the chapter after that, that was chapter 9, and in chapter 11 we see David as his, at his absolute worst. In the story, I didn't print it all for you because most of you are familiar with it, but the story goes something like this. David, once Bathsheba comes to him, um, and, and they sleep together, and then he sends her back home. Word comes to him very soon that she is pregnant, and so David, there's a problem. She's now pregnant, so what do I do? And so David sends for her, her husband Uriah, and he brings him home from the battlefield under the guise of wanting to get information about the battle from him. And then he said, tells him, well, you know, since you're home, why don't you go by and, and see your wife? Because he's hoping that he will go home. And, you know, men who've been in battle for months typically, you know, appreciate a visit to their wives. And David even sends gifts along with them to kind of set the mood. But Uriah is a man of integrity and faith. And so he says, my brothers are on the battlefield uh, fighting for their lives. I will not do this thing. And so he sleeps on the doorstep of his house. He won't go into his wife. David gets very frustrated. He invites him to a feast, tries to get him drunk. Because he thinks if I can get, you know, you know what happens when people get drunk. That doesn't work either. So David's at his wit's end. He realizes there's no scenario that's going to work for him to cover what he's done. And so he resorts even further to now sending a note along with Uriah back to Joab saying, I need you to, wherever the fighting is the fiercest, send send Uriah out there, and then when the fighting gets really strong, retreat the rest of the troops. In other words, David says, I need you to kill him. And he does. And so David, guilty of adultery, which leads to him being guilty of murder. (laughs) You think, holy cow. And the narrator has arranged these stories, these different parts of David's story, this way on purpose. Because this is the way it goes. I mean, this is how life works. That no matter what victories we achieve, what good we might accomplish, or what, you know, whatever we might be doing, that right in the middle of our very best days, sin is always right there. The Bible says, crouching at the door is the Bible's metaphor for it. In other words, it's just right outside the door, waiting for you to crack the door open so it can rush in upon you. 
The bigger problem that we have to deal with this morning is just this. How can a man who is guilty of adultery and murder be referred to not only in the Old Testament prior to this event, but in the New Testament after this event, be referred to as a man after God's own heart? I mean, we would typically measure a man being after God's own heart by his moral performance, but if we did that with David, he would absolutely be disqualified, and so it must be something other than that. And if you think, I got to thinking about this last night, if you think about those who are known to be faithful followers of Jesus, or those who are known to be passionate lovers of God, and I'm thinking of people in the Bible like Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman, or the Apostle Peter who denied him, or the Apostle Paul who was a persecutor of the church, or from history, Augustine, the sex addict, or John Newton, the slave trader. All of these people that you can begin to draw a profile of in Christian history are are people who failed miserably and then had a radical encounter with the grace of God that changed their life forever. And I would tell you from my limited 36-year-old, limited perspective of the way things work, what I have seen is my favorite people in the world, and I think the best spiritual leaders and the most qualified people to lead other people spiritually are not people who all their life have always done everything exactly the right way, but people who've really blown it. And in the middle of their really blowing it, God's come to their rescue in grace. And they've had such a radical experience of grace. It has so radically altered their life uh, that there's a profound humility, there's a profound gratitude, and they're just overwhelmed. And so it appears that it is not a clean moral record that is prerequisite for being a man after God's own heart, but rather being a moral failure who comes face to face with the grace of God in the gospel. That's David's story. So therefore, we might put it this way. It was David's repentance, not his performance, that qualified him as a man after God's own heart. And it would be true, the same thing, of Peter and Paul and Augustine and John Newton, too. Go back to that list. And so what matters is repentance. Repentance is what God loves. Psalm 51, David sings later in the psalm, the sacrifices of God. In other words, the thing God delights in the most is a broken spirit, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So repentance is what really matters. Repentance is the way to spiritual breakthrough. Repentance is the big deal. Eugene Peterson wrote, he's a pastor and theologian, he wrote a book on David's life. And in that book, in the chapter on Bathsheba, he makes this statement. Just listen carefully to it, if you would. He says, in the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin, which is impossible anyway, but to recognize and repent of sin. Now, I completely disagree with that statement. And I completely agree with it. I completely disagree with the cynicism of it, because it sounds like he's saying, you know what, no matter how hard you try, you're never going to overcome sin, so just stop trying. Just be honest about it. And if that's what he means, you know, I think the Bible teaches very clearly we should put forth every effort to avoid sin and overcome it. So if that's what he means, I disagree, but I don't think it's what he ultimately means. I think what Eugene Peterson is trying to get us to do is to change our game plan, to change our battle plan against sin. Because for the most part, the Christians I know, the battle plan, the game plan against sin is something like this. I'm going to work hard enough to be good enough so that I can prove myself to not be a sinner. (laughs) And so at the end of the day, my ultimate hope 
is that uh, I can be good enough that God will look at my life at the end of my life and he'll say, wow, he was a pretty sharp guy. Or I can do enough good for long enough that at the end of my life, the ledger sheet will balance out and there will be more good than bad. And so God will look at me and say, you know what? Okay, he's, he's okay. And it's fascinating to me as I've been a youth pastor and whatnot for years, I, I, this constant story thread of being a youth pastor as a parent would come to me uh, and they would say something like, you know, well, my, my, my son, I caught my son looking at pornography. And, and they wouldn't mean it this way, but here's how it would sound. I caught my son looking at pornography. I need you to fix him so he'll never do that again. Good luck. And if you look just underneath what a parent, what a parent is doing in situations like that and the expectation that I feel like that I, you know, was put on me as a youth pastor, and I'll be honest with you, this might hurt. This might sting just a bit. But what I perceive of a lot of us in this church is that the goal and the hope of parents is to raise children who never sin. Rather than to raise children who know and delight in Jesus as a savior of sinners like them. And so what Eugene Peterson in meditating on this text is doing, he's saying, he's saying, if your game plan is to avoid sin, then it will turn you into a person. What's going to happen is it's going to turn you into a person who's dishonest and disingenuous because you'll never be without sin. And so the only choice you'll have, if the only thing that matters, if your hope is that you will be able to be a person who does not sin, the only choice you have will be to begin to resort to lying and manipulation in an effort to hide your sin from people. But the only way to truly overcome sin is to admit it, to confess it, to call yourself what you are. I'm a big, fat sinner. And then to turn to the God of Micah 7 in Psalm 103, who forgives sins and is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who does not treat us as our sins deserve, but casts them into the depths of the sea. See, See, it's repentance. That's what repentance is. Repentance is calling me myself what I am, turning away from all of my efforts to be good enough so that God will look at me and and put his stamp of approval on me, and turning to him in my sin and moral failure and saying, oh God, have mercy, and looking to him to forgive and to heal me. That's what I mean. And so Peterson writes, that's how we define that word repentance in the church. It's a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ in faith. And so Eugene Peterson goes on, and he says, our approach to sin then, and this is so great, he says it's characterized not, by, in other words, the gospel will produce, produce an approach to sin that is characterized not by warnings and threats, but by encouragements to honesty, invitations to come out into the open and greet the Son of Righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. And he says this is in stark and gospel contrast to the overcast weather of depressing moralism that keeps people, so many people indoors, huddled in denial or guilt. David was a man after God's own heart, not because he never sinned, but because of how he dealt with his sin. He was a good repenter. And so we need to look and see David's repentance so that we can learn uh, in our effort to be good repenters as well. Three things from this text then that I want us to talk about. I know that was a long introduction, but three things. I want you to see from this text the need for repentance first. Secondly, the context for repentance And thirdly, the power for repentance. Okay, so those are our three points there in the outline on the back of the sheet where your sermon passage is printed. First, the need for repentance. We're going to see David's sin. Then secondly, the context for repentance, how it happens. And we're going to see David's friend. 
and then the power for repentance and David's own repentance. Those three things, starting with just this. First, with the need for repentance. Okay, in 1517, when Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the castle door of Wittenberg, he was issuing a challenge to the Roman Catholic Church and pointing out doctrinal errors in the church. The number one thesis that Luther issued was stated like this. Anybody have an idea? The number one thing Luther had with the church. The number one abuse spiritually that he was trying to go against. Anybody have any idea what it is? Here it was. This is how he put it. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So for Luther, repentance wasn't a one-time deal. Repentance was a lifestyle. He said all of life is repentance. All of life in the Christian life is the process of repentance and faith. Now, 2 Samuel provides three arguments for a lifestyle of repentance. First, because of what sin is. Secondly, because of how pervasive it is. And thirdly, the way it works in the soul. And I want us to just take some time and work through this passage, okay? So, 2 Samuel, the story of Bathsheba, chapter 11, is providing three, these arguments for why a lifestyle of repentance is a good idea for a Christian. And let's talk about each of those for a minute, okay? First, let's think about what this passage teaches us about what sin is. And it really is this word at the beginning of Psalm 51, if you look down there in David's prayer, where he says, Have mercy on me, O God, blot out my transgressions, verse 1. For I know, verse 3, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That word transgressions means something like to go beyond or to, to trespass. Now let me illustrate. We, uh, we got back uh, just last week from a week in the mountains with my sister and, and my brother-in-law and being up there as a family. So we have, uh, we have four kids, they have three, so seven children, the two couples, and my dad. Isn't that awesome? So grand, granddad gets like the seven children in one house for a week. It's amazing. We have, a, we have a, a, a nephew who is, what, 10 months old? Is he 10 months old? 10 months old. Well, problem. The place we're staying in had stairs. We didn't bring a baby gate, you know, or any of that kind of stuff. So obviously... My 10-month-old nephew, if you set him on the floor, where's the first place he's going to go? The stairs. So all week long, it was this sense of, Jake, no. Jake, no. Jake, no. So what do you do, right? So you resort to spanking, which works for about 30 minutes. Then, then pretty soon, it was like, okay, we're just going to plant somebody on the stairs, Somebody's just going to sit there. But that gets old. So then, we, by the end of the week, we resorted to building construction sets that would not allow Jake to get up the stairs. And literally, Maddie will tell you. So we got chairs from the dining room table, and we're putting them up there. And I swear to you, we did it three or four times, and every time we look up, whoop, he's up the stairs. How did he do that? I mean, and literally, it got so bad that the only thing we could figure out is we had to build such a blockade of things that I couldn't get up the stairs to get to my bedroom. Now, what is that? You know, he would get up there, I mean, literally, my man's like wiggling, I don't even, he's not even that, you know, how, what is that? That's what the Bible means when it talks about transgression. It means God has posted all of these warning signs for us. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, honor your father and your mother, whatever they may be, right? Don't covet what other people have, be generous with your money and possessions, all these commands. And if we ignore what God has said, it's like Jake climbing up the stairs. One slip of the hand is all it'll take, right? And then boom, 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 But that's exactly what we're doing. 
we are constantly ignoring God's laws. We despise his word, Samuel says in, in 2 Samuel 12, 19, and go beyond. We go beyond the boundaries that God has put in place in our lives for our good. So God says, don't commit adultery. That's, that, that's a boundary. That's, that's an obstruction on the stairs. And what does David do? He sees a beautiful woman and he says, I want that. So we could define sin this way. It is the absolutization of my will over and against the will and desires of others and even God's will. It's making what I want the most important thing, more important than what other people might want or need, even more important than what God wants or what he says is right and good for me. And the way the narrator gets at this, this, in this, this chapter is in chapter 11, there's, a little, there's one little verb that the narrator uses 11 times in these verses. So everybody picks up on this. It says very obvious that this verb uh, that, the, that the narrator's using is meant to be giving a theological point, And that verb is send. And you don't get it there because I didn't print the whole chapter for you. But 11 times in chapter 11, David sends. He sent Joab, verse 1. <clears throat> Later, when he saw Bathsheba bathing, he sent for her and they brought her to him. When he found out she was pregnant, he sent for Uriah. Uriah came and wouldn't cooperate. And so he sent him back to Joab and he sent with Uriah a letter that ordered Joab to put him where the fighting was the fiercest. And then Joab sent a letter back to David that Uriah was dead. And so David sent for Bathsheba, and he became his wife. And nearly every commentator picks up on this. And here's what they say. They say, see, David has grown in his power, and now he's taking his power, and he's trying to manipulate and control other people. He's saying, look, go. You, there. He's on top, pointing his finger, telling everybody else, where to go. And so sin is wanting to control my life and do whatever I want to do, but it's also my wanting to control your life and exerting my will against your will to accomplish my agenda, whatever that might be. And really, it's my wanting to control the universe and to be accountable to nobody but myself. And so Peterson, in that book I told you about, goes on to say, sin stories after a while tend to sound pretty much alike. Virtually they all ring. Sin rings changes on the themes of wanting to be God's ourselves. And the scripture is very clear that when we do this, when we ignore God and when we try to run our lives and when we try to run other people's lives, when we try to put ourselves in the place of God and run the universe, all we do is create chaos and ruin and death. We end up falling down the stairs. It's inevitable. It's like gravity. So that's why we should repent. Secondly, second argument that the passage makes for repentance is from the picture it gives of how pervasive sin is in the heart. And look at the way this works in David's heart and life. Okay, let's just look at this for just a minute. It starts with self-indulgence, right? In chapter 11, we're told that it is the time when kings go out to battle, and yet David has not gone out to battle. What's he doing in Jerusalem? So, in some sense, he is kind of, he's pulling back off the accelerator He's, he's slacking off in some of his duties to some degree. There's a lack of diligence on his part that then leads to he just happens to be walking on the roof one night when he should be out making war against his enemies. There he is on the roof, and there's a woman, and so lust conceives in his heart. There's this desire that is birthed in him because he's not been diligent in his fight against sin. And then after lust conceives, there's all this preparation and planning. He sins for her, and he does all of these things, and he begins to involve other people in his sinful desires. And then, of course, there's the adultery, and then there's the cover-up, and that cover-up doesn't work, and so he resorts to plan B, which is better than plan A, 
which ultimately even that kind of goes awry. And so then there's the murder plot. And then the hard-heartedness. Think about this. To send the message by the hand of the man you're going to murder. I mean, sin is just so, it's that, that all of the facets of all of the things that are happening in David's heart. Sin is so pervasive. I mean, this, Uriah is one of David's friends. Bathsheba's father, Eliam, is one of his greatest counselors. And yet sin just takes over and just begins, I mean, just comes in and begins to just corrupt everything and becomes just a pervasive influence in his life. It's just scary. And then the third argument for repentance from a lifestyle of repentance from this passage comes from showing how it works in the soul. What happens to David in the process of all of this that is going on in his heart. And it really leads to him being dishonest. I mean, sin leads to dishonesty. I mean, think about Eden for a minute. Okay, the the scene in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and then something happens. They realize, they look down, I guess, and they realize they're naked. But they've been naked all along. But all of a sudden, they realize they're naked and they're ashamed of it. They have what the philosophers would call existential guilt. They had been right. So they didn't realize, they didn't, make any, they didn't take any notice of their nakedness. Now they know they're wrong. And do you remember what they do? When they hear God walking through the, the garden, the sound of his feet coming through the garden, do you remember what they do? What do they do? They hide. They hide. Now what a great story to help us understand our lives. I mean, like Adam and Eve, we are scared to death to be naked with people about our sin, to be naked with God especially, and so we hide. Sin always leads to the sense of hiding. Look at the text, David sins. And then what does he do? He tries desperately to hide his sin. So we're all hiding. We're all scared to death of being exposed to being naked with people, and especially being naked with God. And so the problem and the reason a lifestyle of repentance is so important is deceiving other people, being your own person, you know, PR firm, all these things we do, it ultimately leads to self-deception. I mean, you'll be so invested in, in projecting an image to people of who you really are and hiding the truth about you that eventually you'll become blind to your own sin. You'll be so busy projecting and defending and rationalizing and making excuses and managing your public image that you'll get confused about what's real and what's not, and you won't be self-aware. You'll be self-deceived. And that's David. He's self-deceived. He, he, he cannot connect the dots between his actions and what's going on in his heart. And so secondly, we see then, the second point in the outline would be the context for repentance. And so if that's true, if that's what sin does, if it leads to self-deception because we're trying to hide, then how does God work to bring us to repentance? If, if the condition, in other words, of sin is that we're in hiding, we're dishonest, we're isolated, we're self-deceived, we're blinded to our true condition like David was, then the work God has to do in order to lead us to repentance is to wake us up. I mean, David, David's life has, been, has become a, a train wreck, and he doesn't even know it yet. I mean, he's completely blind to how bad things have gotten. He's just ordering people around and pointing his finger. I mean, his life is about to absolutely blow up, and he's completely blind. I mean, completely self-deceived. And so God has to wake him up. I mean, God in love for David has to come and break through and bring David into confrontation with himself. And so he can see the reality of his sin and the danger he's in, and so he can repent. He has to expose David. And so God does it this way. You ready? 
he sends him a friend. Nathan. And so the context for repentance, what we're talking about, a lifestyle of repentance is just this. It's friendship. It's confrontational community. I mean, see, the problem with sin is you never know when you're sinning. I mean, sin leads to self-deception. That's what we saw in the story of Saul a few weeks ago. That's what we see here. David was self-deceived. And here's the problem. If you were to say, okay, I get it, I get it, okay? Repentance is the way to spiritual progress. I I understand. And so you and I would say, okay, I'm going to decide. Here are the two or three things. You know, I'm going to take away from this sermon. There are two or three things. And I'm really going to work really hard on these two or three things this next week. If you do that, the problem with that is this, is that the two or three sins you choose won't be the two or three biggest sins in your life. Because your greatest flaws and the habits of your heart that are killing you the most are the ones you don't even see. You're completely blind to them. You don't even know they're a problem, and that's why they're so dangerous. That's why they have such control over you. It's because you don't even realize they're there. And so if that's true, then how do we find out about the sins that are really controlling our lives that have us completely duped? What do we do? We can't do it by ourselves. So what's God's design? Friends. Spiritual friendship confrontational community. The church, not just community, confrontational community. People who are willing to go in there with one another. And I'll tell you, my most trusted, and I'm blessed, because I can tell you my most trusted and faithful friend in this regard to me uh, is my wife. Uh, and this is how it works these days in our, in our house. I was just thinking about this, and this is kind of the flavor this has taken. And she's gotten better at this over the years, and I still stink at it, so pray for me. But it'll be something like this. I'll start complaining about my kids. So, so-and-so. I'm not going to name anybody, but so-and-so is lazy. He, his room's a mess. There are clothes all over the floor. All he wants to do is lay around and play video games all day long. It's ridiculous, and I'll just be raging. Right? Ashley will sweetly sidle up to me the way that she does. And she'll point to my clothes that are on the floor in our bedroom. And she'll say, he's... You. He's only doing what you've trained him to do. Okay, that's a you're the man moment. And here's how this helps me, see? Is while I'm raging about my child's laziness, I'm starting to think of all the disciplinary tactics that I'm going to employ to work on him. And by the way, let me advertise, Amy Dodd is the queen of creative disciplinary tactics. If you need help, call her. I mean, she'll, she'll have your kids walking on the side of the road in and, and, and orange straight jackets picking up trash and doing all kind of crazy stuff. I mean, she's amazing. But what I'm doing is I'm beginning to form, I'm beginning to formulate plans for all of these, these amazing disciplinary tactics that I'm going to employ to work on my son. And then what I get to do is I get to take those things and I get to get to work on me. And that's so helpful. But you see, if, if the posture of sin is hiding, if it's, in other words, if it's isolation, if it's lack of genuine friendship, if it's no transparency, no vulnerability, I'm just going to pull back from people and, and hide, then the way sin gets addressed in your life is for you to be completely naked before other people. You need to be completely honest and transparent about your sins and your struggles and to open up your life and to let people see the beauty and the ugly parts of your heart. And marriage does that better than any other relationship. And that's why a spouse can be a 
cause of terrible heartache or a great friend. It depends on their goal, whether it's selfish and hurtful or if it's love. So let me just ask, do you have Nathans in your life? Have you deputized Nathans in your life? Do you, you don't stand a chance without them. Do you have friendships where the goal, friendships where you've set the expectation, I want you to help me see my sin. I need you to confront me when I'm wrong. And do you, unlike me, make it safe for people when they come and talk to you about that? Do you make it safe for them to approach you, or do you defend yourself and get cranky? I mean, when they come talk to you, do you get too devastated so that it's hard for them to do their job? I mean, this is where Ashley's really served me well, because you can, you can laugh with her about this later. Because, you know, I, um, I make it incredibly hard in those you're the man moments for her, because I overreact, and I get defensive, and I don't take criticism well. Anybody shocked? Right? And, uh, I, and so sometimes it takes me days, I'm, I'm serious, or even weeks to get over a confrontation. And so pray for me, because it's a place where the gospel still needs to penetrate my heart, because my idolatry is I'm a good boy, and when she comes to confront me, she's reminding me I'm not a good boy. And I tend to fall apart emotionally. And she knows this. And she knows that if she confronts me, I'm likely to whine like a little baby for a day or so or longer. And yet she's growing increasingly willing to do it anyway and to live with the consequences. Because she knows and I know that without it, I'm a dead man. Without friends like this, I'm left with absolutely no mechanism in my life for discovering my sin and repenting. A couple of practical helps as you begin to imagine what this looks like. Just, just for free. Number one, as you think about friendships like this and as you think about conversations you might need to have or whatever it might be, a couple of practical helps. First, be specific. When Nathan comes to David, he comes and he names David's sin. He says, you've done this and you've done this. And the wor- I hate these conversations where I'll have a conversation with somebody and they'll kind of they'll say something and then I'll, I'll, I'll ask them a little bit more. Well, I, you, know, it's just, it, I'm, you know, it's just sin. What does that mean? That's what, in other words, if you're general, if you're general and not specific, it can become just a way to just just shut the conversation down and not have a real conversation about real issues. Get specific. If you go to somebody and you need to confront them, you need to be specific. And secondly, you need to be their friend. I mean, you need to be a friend. The goal needs to be repentance and restoration, and that's why Nathan does it the way he does. Look at how he does. He he's brilliant. He tells a story, and he gets David fired up, excited. Because his goal is that David would repent. So be specific and make your goal repentance. Two practical things. Now let me ask, do you have Nathans in your life that you're completely naked with? And do you give them the freedom to do your job? Anybody else want to say, no thank you? That's incredibly hard. I mean, to be willingly open and honest, opening yourself up to the critique of others, that's, that's incredibly difficult because it hurts, doesn't it? And so finally, we need to finish then by looking at this third point and just ask, then where do you find the power? Where do you find the courage to be honest and not in hiding? And we find the answer in David's repentance. So look at his repentance with me for a minute. It's quite marvelous. And we're going to come back to Psalm 51 next week. But when Nathan confronts David, what is David's response? Verse 13 of chapter 12. I have sinned against the Lord. So quick, so immediate, so thorough. Look down there at Psalm 51. 
verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your works, excuse me, and blameless in your judgment. Now, contrast this with Saul. If you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at Saul being confronted by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15, what did Saul do? Do you remember? He, first he blame shifted. He said, well, you know, Saul, why are the sheep still here? I told you to kill them. Well, you know, the people that you were here, they wanted to, and he began to blame shift and blame other people. And then he made excuses. He said, well, you know, we were going to take those sheep that you told me to kill and we were going to use them to make a sacrifice to the Lord. But you see none of that in David. No blame shifting, no excuse making. There's the simple, I have sinned. And he takes full responsibility for his sin. There's no but on the other side of his confession. I mean, think of Adam in the garden, right? When God confronted him about his sin, it's my favorite. Adam, you sinned. Yes, I sinned. But the woman. Right? <laughs> Eve, what about you? Yes, well, I sinned. But the serpent. Not David. There's no but. He takes full responsibility. He throws up his hands and he says, it was me. No blame shifting, no excuses, no pouting like a little baby, like I do, no hiding. He's completely naked. And that's the difference between David and Saul. And that's what made David a man after God's own heart because David knew something about the Lord that Saul didn't know. David knew that salvation was by grace. And this is the thread that we've been weaving throughout this whole series. In his anointing, the, the youngest being preferred over the oldest. In his army, that it's the, those that are in debt and distress and, and discontented rather than the special forces that Saul had. Salvation is by grace. This is what God's trying to teach David and what he's trying to teach us. That God doesn't save good people, he saves sinners. And it wasn't David's moral record or his military conquests that qualified him to be Israel's king. And so his moral failure can't disqualify him. And for you and I, the ability to be courageous enough to invite Nathans into your life starts with the knowledge that your standing with God isn't dependent upon your performance. Salvation is by grace. Amen? It is true. And so that leads to a gospel principle then. And here is the gospel principle of this passage. I want to say it this way. If we cover our sin, then God in love will work to expose it. If we expose it, then God in love will work to cover it. Let me say it again. I heard some mmms. Mmm. I stole that from somebody, but the terrible thing is, is I don't even know who I stole it from. There is nothing new under the sun. If we work, Excuse me, if we cover our sin, then God, because he loves us, will work to expose it. If we expose our sin, then God, because he loves us, will work to cover it. Let me say it another way. Frederick Buechner said it this way. He said, to confess your sins to God is not to tell him anything he doesn't already know. But unless you confess them, they are the abyss between you. However, when you confess them, they become the Golden Gate Bridge. So, if we try to cover our sin, there will remain an abyss between ourselves and God and others of our own making. There'll be no intimacy, just distance relationally, you know, even in our relationship with God. And so God, because he loves us, will work to expose us. That's what he has to do. However, if we're honest, if we're transparent, if like David we say, I am the man, and we expose our sins and we live a lifestyle of repentance, then God promises to cover our sins. Because look what he says to Nathan. I mean, look what Nathan says to David in verse 14. Once David makes this confession, verse 14, the Lord 
has put away your sin, you shall not die. What? How can God do that? I mean, do you see, that creates a problem. I mean, how can God forgive David and still be just? David should die. He's guilty, but he doesn't. So how can God just look the other way? I mean, how? no, that's, that's terrible. That's the exact opposite of love, to look at an evil perpetrated on a, a woman and a family and a nation of people and to just say, you know what, eh, no big deal. I mean, how can God look at that and just decide to look the other way? And, and the theological answer is he can't. And that the moment, this moment in David's life sets the course for the rest of history because the only way that God can say this to David here, I've forgiven your sins, is that years later, David's son, Jesus Christ, would come into the world to deal with sin and to die in David's place. And God could say, I've put away your sin to David because he was going to deal with David's sin at the cross. And on the cross, Jesus died for sinners. The innocent for the guilty. Jesus died in David's place He died for David's crimes so that David could go free. And if you put your faith and trust in him, then he died for you too. He paid the penalty for your sin. And he gave to you the gift of his righteousness. And this is what the Apostle Paul is meditating on in Romans chapter 3 when he says, God put forth Jesus as a propitiation for our sins in order to establish his righteousness because beforehand in his Patience and love, he had passed over the sins of his people, like David. But if he passed over them and did not deal with them, he could not be just. And so his justice demanded death. But in David's death, he was satisfied with Jesus' death. To establish his righteousness. But here's what this means for you and I. I belabor this point for this reason, because now 1 John 1, 9 says, John writes to the church and says, if you, conf- if you say you're without sin, you're a liar, he says. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. Why just? Because if your faith is in Jesus Christ, your sins have already been paid for. He can't make you pay for them too. And therefore, what Micah 7 says is completely true. If your faith is in Jesus, you've been pardoned. Go back to that verse later. God is not angry with you anymore. Not because you never sinned, but because his anger against you came down upon Jesus. He has tread your sins underfoot and cast them into the depths of the sea, and he remembers them no more. And what Psalm 103 says is true. God does not deal with you as your sins deserve. Just stop. God does not deal with me as my sins deserve. Every other person in my life deals with me as my sins deserve. But he doesn't. He doesn't punish us to try to teach us a lesson. What Psalm 103 says is he's removed our sins from us as far as as the east is from the west. Can somebody answer a question? How far is that? (laughs) Do you believe that? Is it, more than just a the, I mean, what, is it more than just a theological doctrine to you? Is it spiritual reality in your heart yet? Do you believe God has put away your sins? In other words, do you believe that your standing with him is not dependent upon your good moral record, but upon the work of Christ for you? If the answer is no, if it's not yet real in your heart, then you're not a Christian yet, and you won't be a good repenter. 
you won't pray prayers like Psalm 51. <laughs> because you won't be free to be naked like that, to say, I'm a sinner. From my mother's womb, I'm a sinner. You'll hide, you'll posture, you'll do PR. But here's the thing. If the more the truth of the gospel begins to sink down into your heart, the better you'll become at repentance because you'll be able for the first time to be honest. You'll open your life up to the critique of others and invite them in to help you battle against sin. You'll have Nathans that feel permission to come in and talk to you and you'll become a Nathan yourself. And that's when spiritual breakthrough begins to happen. I mean, that's, that's when you'll really begin to experience victory over sin. Remember, remember. Remember the gospel principle. If we cover our sins, then God will work to expose them. But if we expose our sins, then God will work to cover them in Jesus. And the more, the more we come to truly believe that gospel principle, the more we can begin to put into place the means by which God means to bring us, not only to faith and repentance, but to radical obedience to his commandments. And that's what we long for, right? And so let's pray that he would do that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we confess to you that though we have listened, some of us, to hundreds of sermons, and though we've probably read Psalm 103, some of us dozens, if not more times than that throughout our life, that there are so many ways in which the love that you have for us in your son Jesus Christ is still not real to our hearts yet, that every week we come into this place having fallen back into the, the, the morality and the moralism of, of religiosity that tries to do enough good that will cause you to look at us and, and be pleased. And we confess that we are religious by nature and that our flesh can't stand the grace of the gospel. We, we really want to produce a righteousness that is ours that we can boast in. And the result of that for so many of us and for me is that we live our lives in hiding and fear of being exposed, and Father, I just confess to you, I'm tired. That's exhausting. So this morning I pray, even as we sing these songs about the the one who has saved us in his beauty, that you would drive home to our hearts the truth of the gospel, that you, Lord Jesus, are a friend of sinners, that you came not for the healthy, but for the sick, not for the righteous, but for the morally bankrupt. And that we, like David, maybe some of us for the first time in our lives this morning could stand before you and be honest for the very first time. That you might look upon us in love and heal us. So as we sang a minute ago, lead us to the cross in these moments and cause us to our joy and our knowledge of the love that you have for us in Jesus and Jesus as a Savior of sinners to increase in our hearts that we might worship him well and serve him well and obey him with all of our hearts, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, please, please, I, I want to announce at the end of the service, please do come back tonight and, and, um, and walk and pray with us. If you have little kids, bring them, put them in a stroller. We'll walk, you know, we walk the strollers around. If, if We'll have a group that stays in the park, too, if you don't want to walk. Uh, but please come join us at 5 o'clock, Caddy Corner from Richard's Coffee. It's a great time, and I really think it's a blessing to be able to pray for our city like that. So I just wanted to put that out there one more time, okay? Uh, and the weather's beautiful, so you have no excuse. Except football, I suppose, but that's not really an excuse. Um, We read through James a few weeks ago in community Bible reading. At the end of James, James makes a statement. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Now, that's an interesting statement to me, that he seems to indicate that the way you get victory over sin 
is not to keep it bottled up inside, but to, but to, to put it out there and to stand naked before people and to be honest. And so if the gospel's true, then this ought to be the way our lives are characterized as Christians who live in a city of people who don't know what it's like to be honest with weaknesses, about weaknesses and failures. And so there's a missional component to this as well. And so God calls us to be this radical, grace-centered, gospel-centered people who readily and willingly confess their sins to one another. But as we do, and as we go to be that and do that in one another's lives, the benediction is here to remind us why you can be a great Nathan in confronting and why you can be a great David in being confronted is that in either case, uh, the love of God for you is not dependent upon your performance, but upon the work of Christ on your behalf, and that is the promise of this benediction. So rest in the gospel even as I pronounce this over you as you go, to be faithful to his commands. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.